Good morning. As we continue to travel these uncertain times together, I'd like to turn your attention once again to the Word of God as we continue our Gospel of John sermon series. We'll be in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. So if you have your Bible at home, I'd like to invite you to turn with me. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. We have a lot of scripture to cover this morning, and I say that unapologetically as we examine the famous story of Jesus speaking to the woman of Samaria. So once again, we'll be at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Hope you've got your Bible with you, and I'll start in chapter 4, verse 1, where we read these words. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, saying, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty we have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered her, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, 
I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Last week, I talked about how my wife and I recently celebrated another wedding anniversary. And for some reason, this led me to start to count all the various places that we've been to together as a married couple. We've been to wonderful places like Mexico, Tennessee, Minnesota, Nebraska, and so on. We've met lots of wonderful people. We've experienced culture and different life. Uh, we've, we've visited a lot of great churches and other places where there's a lot of great gospel ministry going on. There's a lot of differences in the people that we've talked to and the cultures that we've visited. But there's one common denominator that describes them all. And that is this, everyone is a sinner in need of a savior. In our passage this morning, Jesus leaves Judea to travel to Galilee. He does ministry in Judea and Galilee and Capernaum and other places in Palestine. And no matter where he goes, each and every time he encounters people who are in need of a savior. Sometimes when we meet someone who has become a Christian, one might say, a skeptic might say, well, that's great for them that they got their life turned around, but that's not what's best for me. But actually, Scripture teaches otherwise, that we all are sinners before God, and we too need a Savior. In this passage, we learn that Jesus Christ alone is the Messiah who alone can provide salvation for his people. And we'll unpack what that means as we start in the beginning of the passage, and we learn that Jesus departs from Judea, he, uh, and he goes to Galilee, and he does this after he hears the Pharisees are starting to hear that he's gaining more popularity and attention than John the Baptist. And because Jesus did not in any way want to interrupt John the Baptist and his thriving ministry, and he knew that the Pharisees, the religious leaders at that time, would try to exploit this situation and cause divisiveness, Jesus, in his humility, departs to go through another place to continue to do kingdom ministry. And in verse 4 it says that, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. He, he passed through Samaria to get to Galilee because it was the shortest route. Geographically speaking and just using basic common sense, it would have been the best route to go because it would have got him to Galilee the fastest way. Anyone would take advantage of that. But when you look a little deeper and you look at those two words, had to, in the original language, the original language there is really strong. It could be translated uh, to be necessary. Elsewhere, when those words are used, it shows divine necessity or divine requirement. What's going on here is that Jesus passing through Samaria is not an accident. There's no such thing as a coincidence. But instead, it's God's sovereign, providential plan that he would go through Samaria because, as we'll later see, it was God's plan for him to meet this immoral woman at the well. This was not an accident. This was divine plan. He had to go to Samaria. And the journey from Judea to Galilee is about three days of walking, and they end up in a town called Sychar in Samaria, and Jesus sends out his disciples to go get food, which is a staggering thought, because as we'll see, Jews and Samaritans hated one another, 
and the fact that Jesus felt comfortable asking his disciples to go get food in Samaria, unlike most Jews of that day, he was doing something and showing that he's breaking some of these cultural taboos or these cultural prejudices. And once Jesus gets to Samaria, I love how verse 6 puts it. The second part of verse 6 where it says, So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus wasn't standing by the well. He was sitting by the well, and he was wearied, tired, exhausted, drained. He's been doing public ministry and preaching and teaching and healing and serving people, not to mention helping his disciples. And now on a journey to get to Galilee, he's been walking, and our Lord and Savior got weary. This is incredibly encouraging on multiple fronts. We, we, we know that Jesus is fully God, has always been fully God, will always be fully God. But we rightly believe that when Jesus also took on human form, in the, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, we spoke about how Jesus became flesh. That means he took on human form, fully God, but fully man. That means, similar to us and the experiences that we feel, Jesus himself would have felt some of these difficult emotions like exhaustion and weariness. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, yet without sin. He suffered, he was tried, he felt human emotions, he felt the abandonment, but he never sinned. So as we travel these COVID-19 waters together, we will feel weary, we'll feel potentially scared, and anxious. Kids are at home and it can make us feel overwhelmed for some of us. Others of us, um, job situations or the economy or there's something that might be bringing you down, a health scare. We serve a God who's not far and distant, who can't sympathize or understand what we're going through, but we have a God who in every way has been tempted yet without sin. So we should gladly and humbly cast our fears, our anxieties, our cares upon him, trusting that he hears our prayers and he's going to help us through this difficult time as we walk through it together as a church. Verse 6 also tells us that it's about the sixth hour, which is noon. It's the hottest part of the day. And then the unnamed Samaritan woman comes out to draw water uh, from the well. She comes out by herself at the hottest part of the day to get water from the well. This is a significant thought because women back then, uh, similar to women today in public areas where they go to the bathroom together, women back then went to the well together to draw water. Uh, People who drew water from this well did so typically in the morning or in the evening to avoid the heat. But she goes by herself at noon Uh, And this is, as we'll see, because she's dealing with shame. She's dealing with guilt from her life. She's probably been isolated from the other women in her town, and they did not want to associate with her. She's an outcast, probably very lonely in a lot of ways. So she goes by herself, and Jesus sees her, and he strikes up a conversation with her, and he says, give me a drink. 
And this would have been extremely baffling to her. She is from Samaria. She's a Samaritan. Jesus is Jewish. Samaritans and Jews mostly hated one another. They did not hang out with one another. They did not fellowship or talk to one another. Uh, Jewish people believe that if they associated with a Samaritan person, they, they would somehow make them unclean or defiled in some way. And yet the Lord Jesus does never becomes unclean, but he touches what's clean and makes it unclean and makes it clean. And he's speaking to her, and she's confused by this. She's saying, how can you, a Jewish person, a male, talking to me in public, and not only that, you ask me to do a favor for you. For you. People never do this kind of thing. So Jesus here is breaking all kinds of uh, cultural assumptions and prejudices, and yet he never sins, and yet what we see here is part of the heart of Jesus, his desire to not live concerned about what everyone else thinks about him, but to be willing to go outside the lines, so to speak, and to reach people who are far from God. If reaching someone who's far from God meant that other people might speak poorly about him, so what? Jesus was willing to do that. And he starts to do that when he strikes up a dialogue. And notice here Jesus' evangelism strategy. He, he goes to an everyday place. He talks to a person who's far from God. And he merely starts up a conversation. He says, give me a drink. And as we'll see as we unpack the passage more, we'll see where, where he's going with this. This has always been and will always be the best evangelism strategy for the church to go to people, not necessarily wait for people to come to us. There's a movie out there where a guy has a big uh, backyard and he hears a voice from the sky that says, if you build it, they will come. And essentially he took that to mean that if he builds this baseball stadium, suddenly baseball players were somehow rise from the dead and play baseball again and a lot of people would come to watch them play and he hears this voice multiple times and after consideration and so on and so forth he ends up he ends up doing this he builds his baseball stadium and what do you know uh, many many people a host of people come to watch these legendary baseball players play this if you build it they will come strategy has been adopted by some churches of building big stadium-like churches or having a bunch of programs to attract people. There's nothing wrong with that. There can be a lot of fruit from that. We've seen the Lord use that. So there's good in that and can be used. But here what Jesus is doing is something a little more simpler and probably a more effective and that is simply going to people by going to an everyday common place, talking to someone who's far from God and starting to get to the real need of what they need, which is a personal relationship with Jesus. So as you, obviously right now life is difficult and different, but as you consider your life, uh, Lord willing, as things start to normalize uh, in the future, uh, think about places that you go, everyday places like the gym, people that you've associated there with, coworkers that you know are far from God, that you love, that you would want to see them come to faith in Christ, people in your family, people in your neighborhood that you associate with regularly or see. Consider ways that you can tell them about Christ and start gospel conversations with them. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to know everything about the Bible. You, you might feel nervous. You might feel awkward. But the salvation and the saving part is God's part. You can't save anyone. Only God can save. But he seeks to and wants to use you as an instrument to be a conduit, to be a blessing to others. 
And part of being a disciple is to make disciples and tell other people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus so that they can come to personal faith in him. As it's been said, disciples of Jesus don't just enjoy his grace, but we also extend his grace. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And he continues their conversation. And Jesus answers her after she's baffled. And he says this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is trying to show her at this point similar to Nicodemus in the previous chapter, that she's not really picking up who he is. She, she doesn't really understand his identity quite yet. He's saying, I, I asked you for a drink of water that will temporarily quench my thirst. But if you only knew that I was the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, that I could provide eternal life, you would have asked about that. He talks about living water. That is clearly a metaphor, and that metaphor is for eternal life. It's when someone believes in Jesus and trusts in Jesus, all their sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and the righteousness of Jesus, who died on the cross in your place for your sins and rose from the dead, is attributed and accredited to anyone who believes in him. It's eternal life, and we talked about last week that eternal life is not just heaven, although it is that. It is heaven. It is living forever with God and his people without any sickness or disease or Satan in utter perfection forever. It is absolutely that. But eternal life is also in the present of knowing God and enjoying God and all the benefits that there is to being a Christian, a follower of Christ. So Jesus is saying, hey, I I asked you for water, but if you really knew what I could provide for you, you would have asked that as well. She doesn't pick up what he puts down, and um, probably because he's using metaphorical language, we shouldn't be too hard on her for not understanding. It would be difficult to understand what living water is, right? We, uh, these sort of metaphors need to be unpacked a little bit more. And then she, she tells Jesus, uh, she brings up Jacob from the Old Testament and asks her, um, are you greater than him somehow? Um, Samaritans had a high view of Jacob, and instead of answering that question, Jesus uh, wants to focus on his mission there and revealing her need. So he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, you can give me a drink of water, but I'm going to be thirsty again. You can come out here at noon every day for the rest of your life, but you're going to have to keep coming out here. This water will temporarily quench your thirst, but the living water, the gift of eternal life, will permanently quench your thirst. As one commentator said, it's almost as if God made people in such a way that it's impossible to find lasting satisfaction apart from him. Notice that Jesus uses the word everyone. Everyone. This is not just a thing for this Samaritan woman. He's saying anyone, everyone, anywhere. Republican, Democrat, black, white, rich or poor, 
whoever you are, old or young, no matter what sins you've forgiven, there is not a single sin that is too much for God's grace. No matter who you are and what you've done, simply by believing and trusting in Jesus for your salvation, you too can have access to this living water that Jesus is speaking about. It is the only thing that is knowing God and making him known, having a personal walk with the Lord, coming to know him and being a part of his people is the only thing that can satisfy the deep longings of our heart. It's the way God made us. It's only through him that our uh, thirst can be truly quenched. I played football for six years, many pounds ago. Played high school football, loved it, mostly loved it. One thing I dreaded was something called two-a-day practices. Two-a-day practices were not fun. We would practice in the summertime, in the morning, and then we would practice again in the evening, twice a day. Full pads, two or three hours, lots of running, lots of hitting. It was very difficult. And uh, most of the guys on the team would complain about it, and whenever the coach could sense that we were complaining about it, he would yell at us and scream and say, you know, back in my day, it was way harder, and it was, we practiced way more, and it was several weeks longer, and we did all kinds of stuff that was illegal, and it, you guys shouldn't feel sorry for yourselves because we had it way worse back in my day. And like good millennials, we just decided to ignore his advice completely, and we continued to complain. And it was, it was just really difficult. And, uh, but one thing that they were generous about, the coaches were, that is, was Water breaks. We got a lot of water breaks because it was so hot. They knew that you know, practicing in 95-degree temperature with full equipment twice a day for weeks on end sometimes uh, can be dangerous. So we had these water stations that were set up all over the place, very professional-looking actually, where 20 or 30 of us can drink water from a hose at the same time. And uh, we would you know, get the water, drink as much water as we can, kind of squirt one another just to goof around, put water down our shoulder pads and our helmet, uh, we, we would drink as much water, and suddenly we felt really cool and satisfied. But we would go back to practicing again, and 10 or 15 minutes later, it was like we got thirsty all over again. The water was helpful, but it never seemed to really quench our thirst. That's what Jesus is trying to tell the Samaritan woman. He himself says, give me a drink. He's thirsty, showing part of his humanity. Water's a good thing. Obviously, we need it for survival. But Jesus is trying to unpack a spiritual need, saying that the thirst that she longs for ultimately is God, and she doesn't even know it yet. It can be so easy to try to find satisfaction in the wrong places or a sense of purpose and fulfillment in the wrong places. As we'll see, this woman here from Samaria is sexually immoral and has been. For some of you, that might be something that you're struggling with. It could be that um, you are a Christian and you love God, and, but this area of sexual sin is one that you don't want other people to know about, and that's an area that you don't want to submit to God's word about. It could be others of us. We, we got married. We really love our spouse. We're really committed to them, but they've changed so much over the years, and we wonder how we can continue to love someone who doesn't seem to care about my needs. Uh, there can be a lots of things going on to cause the reasons of frustration with the opposite sex. But one reason is that we, we tend to look to other people 
to give us what only God can give us. When we expect from other people to give us what only God can give us, namely fulfillment and satisfaction, a sense of peace, eternal life, and so on, we're, we're bound for frustration. Uh, being immersed in that sinful lifestyle might be fun for a season, pleasurable for a season, but ultimately it often leads to despair and a sense of emptiness. Uh, for others of you, it, it might not be a sexual sin or looking for it from someone uh, of the opposite sex. It could be your job. It, it could be, uh, and it is absolutely right to work hard, but overwork and doing that year after year after year might lead to neglect of your spiritual life and neglect of people that you love. Uh, it could be that you're trying to find this approval and affirmation and satisfaction from hearing well done from those over you at work. It's certainly good to work hard and to do the best you can to glorify God at your work, but as Tim Keller says, if Christ is truly your identity and you love him, you won't be prone to overworking. Because it's satisfaction and approval you're looking for. In God, you already have it. There, there could be many reasons why we, too, don't feel this sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. It could be uh, that we're not prioritizing Sunday worship with God and God's people. Or the spiritual disciplines are as- absent in our lives. Or there could be some sort of secret sin that we don't want other people to know about that we're keeping in the dark that is keeping us from experiencing God's presence and His blessing. Uh, even if you do have all your priorities in order and you make spiritual disciplines and Sunday worship service a priority in your life, it, it must be said that uh, it shouldn't be seen that you're always going to be satisfied every day no matter what. We live in a world with Satan, sickness, sin. We live in a fallen world, a beautiful world, but a fallen world. But because of the elements like the world, the flesh, the devil, it, it affects our joy and it, and it causes us to feel frustration So we shouldn't expect being a Christian or following Jesus to be easy or this sort of long euphoric ride where everything is good all the time and it's me and Jesus and you're happy all the time. It's like that a lot, but it's not like that always. It cannot possibly be like that with living in a sinful world. But one day, part of this eternal life is knowing that the COVID-19, that all diseases, all sickness, Satan, disease will be put to death forever and God's people will dwell with him forever where there is no more sin and satisfaction will be perfect. It's part of being a Christian is banking on that, knowing that that lasts forever. And that, that is a joy and a motivation that can get us through difficult times such as the times that we're currently going through. The conversation with Jesus and the Samaritan woman continues. But Jesus notices that the metaphorical language of water and living water is not exactly going where he, potentially he intended it. So he, he goes um, straight for the heart, you might say. He becomes abrupt, and he says, okay, go get your husband. The woman would have been a little embarrassed, potentially, to hear that. And she says, I, I actually don't have a husband. Listen to the way Jesus responds. This is a... Perfect example of what it looks like to be a person of truth and gentleness at the same time. He says this. He says, you are right in saying I have no husband. He's affirming her. But he also says, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is gentle with her. 
He knows she's probably struggling with shame over her history, over her present sexual sin, over her current lifestyle. He's, he's very gentle and actually affirms truthfulness in her, but he's unwavering of the truth. He, he knows about her history. In the beginning, we saw Jesus sitting down, being wearied, asking for water. That, that shows his, his humanity. But here, Jesus showing his omniscience, which means his perfect knowledge of everything. He's displaying that because he knows about her past. He's showing his divinity. So he's, he's exemplifying his essence, his character in this passage, showing that he's fully God and fully man. He knows about her past. He's gentle, but he's unwavering with the truth. I think this is a good model to follow as we live in the church or as you reach out to people who are far from God. Followers of Jesus should be gentle, compassionate, and gracious with people who are living in sinful lifestyles or living in unrepentant sin. But we also must be unwavering with the truth and sticking to what the Bible says, especially on this issue. People, people are complicated. Sin is complicated. The, the reason why we do what we do is not always known to us. It, yes, it's because of our sinful nature, but there's genetics and poor parenting growing up and traumatic experiences. The reason why people sin is very complicated. So we must hold truth to what the Bible says, but we also must be gracious with people. You know, some people are stuck into a unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, not because they love that lifestyle, but because they don't know how to get out. And here Jesus is trying to show her how to get out. He's being gentle and he's being gracious. After he says this, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's getting closer to Jesus' identity, but no cigar quite yet. She hasn't hit the bullseye, but she's getting closer. She, okay, at first I had no idea who you were. I, are you greater than Jacob? Why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan woman, you're a Jew. But now you, you actually know about my life a little bit. You must be a prophet. But Jesus is more than a prophet. He's God. He's Savior. He's Messiah. She's still not correct, but she's getting closer. And uh, the conversation moves on from her personal life to worship in some sense. Starting in verse 20, the Samaritan woman changes the conversation from her personal life and her sin right now to the subject of worship. She's probably doing that because she's getting uncomfortable with Jesus confronting her about her life. And naturally, anyone would try to get out of that situation. Or she could be doing that because she perceives that he's a religious figure of some sort. And she wants to talk about what she knows about religion or what she knows about worship of God. She makes mention that there's a specific mountain for people to go to to worship. So Samaritans believe, they believe that there's this kind of mountain that they should go to to worship. Samaritans um, only believed in the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five, the first five books of the Bible. They wrongly only believed in the Pentateuch, and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. So her view of worship was actually truncated and deficient. And Jesus is correct when he talks about what true worship is. So the Jews said, you need to go to a temple. Samaritans said, you need to go to a mountain. But here in the rest of this passage, Jesus transcends what true worship is about. And he says that an hour is coming that is best to believe either his public ministry or his death and resurrection when location doesn't matter anymore. 
She was concerned with location. Jesus is saying, listen, location will not matter anymore at some point. After I die and rise from the dead, it doesn't matter if you're at a mountain, in a temple, in a church building, or not. Because God is spirit, which is a huge theological term that I don't have time to unpack, essentially means that he doesn't have dimensions or size, is not made of matter, and that he's incomprehensible and transcendent. He's knowable, but only if he makes himself known. Because God's being is superior to any other kind of being, because God's spirit lives in all Christians, we are no longer confined to a specific location, like a building, a temple, a mountain, or whatever. God's people can worship him wherever they are, in spirit, not Holy Spirit, but your inward posture of spirit, and in truth, as long as you're worshiping the one true God of the Bible. True worship is not reserved to singing songs on Sunday, but it's a lifestyle of exalting Jesus in all that you do. No longer are we confined to a location because God's Spirit lives in all of His people. This past Sunday, March 22nd, and even this Sunday, is these are unique times. Um, this past Sunday was one of the most unique Sundays in the history of Christianity. From what I know about church history, there has never been a time where God's people were not able to leave their home to go publicly gather to worship God somewhere. Although this online service is a blessing, and we praise God for the common grace of technology to be able to do this, I think you might be able to feel this, that it, it still pales in comparison to physically gathering together. And so we look forward to eager expectation and anticipation when we, in God's timing, can meet in this beautiful building once again to worship the Lord publicly. I, I get a feeling that we have a keen sense of God's presence and a keen sense of unity and appreciation. But until then, we're confined, in some sense, to video and online technology and Pastor Mark's videos throughout the week and the sermon. And yet, we're still able to worship God. Some of you right now in your living room or a place in your home with your families and you might even sing songs. There might be prayer. You're listening to the word of God being preached. Because God is everywhere at all times and his people who worship him truly and because of his spirit lives in you, we are not confined to a location but we can worship God wherever we are. And the last two verses of our passage today really get at the heart of the point of this passage. Although worship and God being spirit and Jesus' love for people who are on the outcast and compassion and gentleness and God's divinity and humanity, all these sub-themes are important. They're not the main point of the story. They're not the main point of the text. We learn what the main point of the text is towards the end. The last two verses say this, the woman said to him, that is the Samaritan woman, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. When this conversation first started, 
this woman had no idea who she was speaking to. As Jesus began to speak to her, she slowly but surely started to get it. Although she misfired a couple of times, now there is no more ambiguity because Jesus himself says, I am he. He's the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one or Christ or deliverer. He's the one who can deliver people from their sins through his death and resurrection. And it's significant that Jesus revealed his identity to someone like the Samaritan woman because he often was not this open about his identity to religious leaders and his own people because the word, quote, Messiah had a lot of political baggage with it. And Jesus was not sent to be some political deliverer kind of guy. He was sent to be the Savior. And so in order to avoid distraction, he often did not reveal himself that bluntly to people, especially to people who he felt like didn't deserve to know about it. And yet with this woman who's sexually immoral, who's on the outside, who's isolated, who's probably feeling a ton of shame and guilt for her life, he gladly pursues talking to her, starts a conversation, tells her metaphorical language, and at the end reveals who he truly is. This is Jesus being vulnerable and open and trying to show her his identity. This is an act of love that he did not allow other people to experience. And that last verse is crucial where it says, I who speak to you am he. The wording here is similar to John chapter 8, which we'll see later when Jesus is having a heated discussion with the religious leaders. And they say, are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. In the Old Testament, when Moses said, who should I say is, what's your name? Who's sending me here to be one who delivers people from bondage? The Lord says, tell him, I am sent you. Means Yahweh, means another name for the covenant name of God. The religious leaders whom Jesus spoke to would have immediately known that he was referring to that text in the Old Testament about the I am, that he is God. And that's why they picked up stones to throw at him because he was claiming to be divine because he is. He's saying before Abraham was, before the book of Genesis, before there was a star, a sun, a moon, a sky, I was there, I have no beginning, I am God, I am the Messiah. And he reveals that to this woman. He pursues her, has this conversation with her, someone on the outside, and he reveals who he truly is. And he's able to deliver because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection and what he's done. Nobody is too sinful for his grace insofar as they humbly repent from their sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and he will wipe away their sins and make them clean again Jesus alone is the Messiah who can provide salvation for his people. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. So many amazing things about you. So many amazing things about your word. 
Help us now, God, as a church, as we travel these waters together. Help us to look to you for our deliverance, for our help. For those who are far from God in our lives that we know, give us the boldness to talk to them about it. Help us, Lord, to find our satisfaction and our ultimate quenching of our thirst from you and you alone. Pray these things in your good name. Amen.